Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. For more than 15 years now, we've been bringing you news and features about national parks and protected areas from around the world via the internet at nationalparkstraveler.org. All those years, one format has been missing, audio. And so now, we're launching a series of weekly podcasts to explore and report on these incredible places. Today, we're going back to the beginning. Beginning, that is, of my national park journeys. They started in the mid-1960s during a Repincheck family vacation to Acadia National Park on the coast of Maine. There, we spent a week hiking the park's trails, gazing at marine life and tidal pools, and feasting on strawberry jam-smeared popovers at the Jordan Pond House. Joining me today is Earl Brecklin, the Communications Director for Friends of Acadia. And Earl, I guess the joys of summer vacations at Acadia really haven't changed that much since the 1960s, have they? No, Kurt, they, they really haven't. Uh, the folks have done a great job of preserving and protecting this park, so visitors today can can find their own unique uh, experience and 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 uh, experience Acadia on a personal level, uh, just as people could do uh, even a couple decades ago. Is there one activity more than others that, that people come for, or um, people just show up and try and squeeze in as much as they can? Well, I think you still have the, the what I call the casual tourists that they want to drive the 22-mile park loop road and, and hit the high points. But there's, there's over 140 miles of uh, hiking trails. There's 50 miles of uh, groomed gravel carriage paths that are ideal for biking and motorized vehicles aren't permitted on those. And uh, so there's there's plenty of uh, plenty of ways to experience the park and uh, get out and enjoy it. There's many lakes. You can canoe. You can kayak. Uh, there's whale watching opportunities. Uh, so there's there's really no shortage of anything to do. And, and I guess for the the, the truly adventurous, um, there's even climbing on the, the cliffs there, isn't there? There is. There are several climbing guides. You can also, uh, if you have uh, sufficient experience in equipment, uh, people climb near the precipice, which is uh, the uh, east face of Champlain Mountain, and then also right at the edge of the ocean out on Otter Cliffs, where the park actually has some uh, set anchor points uh, for belays and safety ropes there that, uh, that people are welcome to use. Now, one thing that has changed um, quite a bit since my initial visit back in the 1960s are crowds. I mean, you didn't have the big uh, cruise ships pulling into to Bar Harbor and uh, sending their thousands of passengers off to uh, Cadillac Mountain and whatnot. It's really kind of made exploring the park a little bit more uh, dicey, shall we say, during the high season? Well, especially during the middle of the day, uh, the hours between 10 and 2, the park can be a very crowded place depending on where you want to be. And one of the most popular pastimes is going up on top of Cadillac Mountain either to watch the sunrise or watch the sunset. And uh, you can have four or 500 people on top of Cadillac at dawn uh, during the summer. But the thing is that there are other places in Acadia to go where you can still have it to yourself. And I think that's one of the focuses now, both of Friends of Acadia and the park managers to say, you can hit those high points, maybe go when it's not peak time, but you can also uh, get that full Acadia experience through other places because definitely the communities. Uh, are busier than ever. The cruise ships, there's more than ever. And uh, there were three and a half million visitors came to Acadia last year, but you still can find a a little place to have all to yourself. 
Now, the, the park staff has been working for uh, a couple of years now, haven't they, on a traffic management plan or a transportation plan to try and get these visitors through the park with uh, more enjoyment for the visitors and, and less impact on the resources? That's correct. And uh, uh, more than a decade ago, uh, the Island Explorer program was started, which is a series of free shuttle buses that uh, connect through the park and through all the communities so, and go by most hotels and campgrounds so that you can leave your car there and get around without having to try to find a parking place. But even with that, they realized that the, the crowds, especially along Ocean Drive, places like Thunder Hole or up on Cadillac, uh, were beginning to diminish the visitor experience. So the, the transportation plan, uh, which has been a little held up because of the shutdown, Picking a final alternative to that will definitely change the way people interact with the park, perhaps even with some uh, reservation uh, system for some of the busier areas for vehicle access. Any idea how how much of a delay the, the shutdown put into work on that plan and getting a preferred alternative out there? Well, the difficulty is, especially for the park folks here, that month of January is when they're hiring seasonal workers, and the park has about 75 or 80 year-round staff but they hire up to 150 seasonal rangers and, and, and interpretive people and maintenance folks. And so that whole hiring has been delayed. So now they're having a hustle to do that in the hopes of not having to delay opening in April. And so the amount of time they've had to devote uh, to the, the transportation plan, which is actually sitting in Washington in the Interior Department, that's where the next action point is. And uh, it's just a question of getting every, everything back up to snuff so they can get that back on track. Yeah. Now, you mentioned uh, the park's going through the throes of seasonal hiring and whatnot. And I, I saw a press release the other day about um, a need to, to find some seasonal lodging, if you will, for these uh, seasonal employees. How's, how's that coming along? Well, it's the housing is a is a major issue here in Montezan Island in itself with the influx of seasonal workers for every business and and the park is no different and they're actually exploring as a pilot program a possibility of partnering with a private developer to create some housing both for park employees and then they would be able to use some for 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 other folks too just as a way of trying to address that need and the fact that there's actually almost a traffic jam of people coming onto the island in the morning. Uh, as people commute here to work because there aren't sufficient places to, to live on Mount Desert Island. Wow. Wow. It's a, a problem I'm sure you're not alone with there at uh, Acadia. Now, over the years, um, Friends of Acadia has raised and invested millions of dollars in the National Park on projects ranging from upkeep of the carriage roads and winter trail grooming and, and scientific research. What can you tell us about this summer's projects that you guys are funding? Well, we, we, we have some of our standard projects. We help uh, subsidize the in, uh, invasive species removal with the crews in the park that uh, try to get uh, uh, different types of plants and, and vegetation that uh, don't belong in the ecosystem here. Also, uh, there's a wetland restoration project going on at Sudamon Springs where a failing septic system was removed uh, over a year ago and, a, and the facility was connected to municipal sewer. So now that is being that area is being turned back into a wetland and into a natural area. Now also um, something that uh, kind of landed on the, the park's plate, if you will, and, and which Friends of Acadia, I believe, is, is helping out with initially is the, um, the Bass Harbor Head Light Program. What can you tell us about that? Well, it's, it's interesting. On the Acadia Quarter and on the park passes in the past and what have you, that lighthouse, which is perched on the rocks right at the entrance to Bass Harbor, is really the one of the iconic images of, 
of this area in Acadia National Park. And it's been under Coast Guard control, although the grounds, uh, except for the Keeper's House itself, have always been open to the public as part of Acadia National Park. And now the Coast Guard is formally transferring that property to the National Park. And it's a question of when you have two basically federal bureaucracies, there's just a lot of paperwork and a lot of T's to cross and I's to dot. So that'll be fully in the park's bailiwick. And we've provided funding through uh, paddle rays at our annual benefit and, and uh, similar programs to help with any environmental remediation, some restoration of those structures and, and trying to help the park determine just exactly what they want to do with the property and what future uses would be appropriate there. Is it a one-time infusion of money from Friends of Acadia? I know I was, I was talking to David uh, McDonald, your, your CEO, uh, a month or two back, and this whole issue of Friends groups long have been viewed as the entities that, that bring that margin of excellence or the frosting to the cake for the national parks. And in recent years, it seems that they're being relied on more and more to, to do uh, some of the the daily maintenance, uh, what, what I like to call the, the the muscle and bones of the national parks, to to keep them running on a daily basis. And you know, he was of the opinion at the time that you know helping out with Bass Harbor Light is is not something Friends of Acadia want to get into on a, a yearly basis. Well, exactly. We we're not interested in operating a facility or or having that be a program of Friends of Acadia. But it was a, a great opportunity to include that in the park and to preserve that history for the local community as well. And so if we could help with some one-time dollars to make that happen, that we're interested in that debate between margin of excellence and funding basic operations of the park, which which really Congress and the American people should be responsible for. Uh, At the same time, like with deferred maintenance and things like that, we've also been uh, advocating with with, uh, Maine's congressional delegation and others to see that the parks do get the, the funding that they need and and uh, and can hopefully uh, not have to try to look to groups such as Friends of Acadia to take care of that, uh, like you say, muscle and bone issues. I noticed uh, just the other day in uh, the, the U.S. Senate, they um, passed a, a massive public lands package and they reauthorized the uh, Land and Water Conservation Fund and uh, a lot of park-related projects in terms of redesignating park names and, and creating a couple new national monuments. One thing they did not do with that um, was address the, um, the maintenance backlog that the national park system is facing. And uh, I'm told that uh, they didn't want to get into any uh, appropriations-related measures with this package per se. Hopefully in the, uh, the coming weeks and months, we'll, we'll see uh, um, a little return to working on that maintenance backlog issue because it, you know, it's roughly $12 billion, and, and that's got to be a drag on parks. Absolutely. And we, we're fortunate that Senator Angus King from Maine has been involved in that infrastructure effort. And even the, the public lands package that you talked about did contain uh, a bill that's important for Acadia concerning uh, uh, clamors and wormers and use of the intertidal area, plus some minor boundary adjustments that, that the park had put forth a couple of years ago. But then again, that still has to go back over to the House. So it's a positive step, but we're, we're still a ways from making all of that happen. Nothing is ever guaranteed when you're dealing with Congress. <laughs> no, exactly. You know, my, my first visit to Acadia was, was back in the 1960s, and it was a family vacation, and, and it was really kind of interesting. I believe we actually brought our miniature poodle, and I've got this vision in my mind 
we were going up one of the, the, the trails on the mountains that required hand over hand on the iron rungs. And I seem to recall my dad was actually carrying the poodle with us as we were going up these rungs. And of course, you can't do that now. I'm not exactly sure how we got away with it back then. More recently, um, my wife and I were fortunate enough to go, I believe it was in 2005, which when you're looking at the 1960s, 2005 is more recently. And we just had a great time in the park. We, we were able to do some uh, sea kayaking and we, uh, we hiked up the South Ridge of Cadillac Mountain and uh, obviously um, had some wonderful meals there in, in Bar Harbor. What, what, I hate to ask you this, but what secrets would you, would you give visitors in terms of trying to both find the essence of Acadia National Park and avoid the crowds? Well, it, it's interesting. People often ask me, what's my favorite trail? And I always go, and it's an honest answer, the, the one I just did, because they're, they're all so great. And I think the, the, uh, to capture the essence of Acadia, you may want to come a different time than July and August, because that's, those are peak seasons, both for seasonal residents and for, for you know, you know, short-term visitors. I think that getting out in the park in the morning, I think the morning light, particularly if you're a photographer, it's really spectacular. Now in July and August, that means you've got to be out there at 5 a.m., but uh, at the same time, you can have the place all to yourself. And I think that a willingness to go to some of the more remote summits, there's, there's uh, so many different hiking trails that the vast majority and concentration of people is along the 22-mile park, Loop Road, Jordan Pond area, Ocean Drive and Tampa Cadillac, but there's a scooter section in the park, which is really beautiful seascape and, and rock ledges, and there's some hiking opportunities there. There's the western side of Mount Desert Island um, with plenty of hiking trails and, and lakes, and so I think that by varying the time, uh, I think the fall is the most beautiful time of year. The foliage usually peaks around Columbus Day, and uh, it's uh, everything's still open, but it's not not as packed, jam-packed with people, and it can be a really beautiful time of year. And then there's also uh, the Isle of Ho. Did I pronounce that correctly? Right. Isle of Ho, which is located off Stonington, Maine, which is a ways west of Mount Desert Island. Uh, there's ferries that run. Their off-season schedule is a little bit different. There is a, a, the uh, Duck Harbor Campground there. Uh, those are on a, a strictly reservation basis. And the boat will bring you there. There's several lean-tos there and a hand pump for a well. And, and uh, the ferry brings you to a dock and you unload your stuff. And, and however many days you're going to stay there, there's all kinds of hiking trails. And there's a couple of fire roads there. So you can get a much more rustic experience from uh, that kind of an opportunity as well. And I guess there are uh, at least uh, two special events that I can think of off the top of my head is uh, you've got your, your bird watching festival, I believe, in early summer and then uh, your, your night sky uh, festival um, towards the fall. Yeah, those are those are great events. Uh, the Acadian Bird Birding Festival, um, because of where the, the intersection of so many habitats, the mountain habitat and boreal forest and then certainly the, the seabirds, you can really punch a lot of do a lot of punch list on your life list uh, if you want to come here and bird. And then Night Sky Festival, it's just the the view of the night sky here, particularly in the fall. It's, it's the weekend of no of the new moon in September, and 
people flock to uh, Top of Cadillac. There's a star party. It's become so popular they actually do reservation parking at a remote site and bus people up. But there's astronomers with telescopes, and there's also educational programming over four or five days. And there's also another star party where you can look through telescopes and talk with astronomers one-on-one at seawall. So it's just a great way to connect with that. And the communities on the island have really uh, come to the fore with uh, doing more and more each year as far as night sky compliant lighting and what have you. So it's really one of the nicest places on the East Coast to really see that Milky Way and and, and see what the universe is all about. Is there any one weekend that you would uh, recommend people avoid Acadia National Park? Fourth uh, of July. Fourth of July. Fourth <laughs> of July. I mean, Bar Harbor is a great parade and good old fashioned Fourth of July, but it's uh, they're, they're uh, Cadillac Mountain, and that's one of the problems is when it gets really busy. Friends of Acadia Summit stewards work with the rangers to let them know that the traffic is backed up on the mountain, and they shut down the road to the top of Cadillac until enough traffic clears because it can just get into a log jam up there. And I think it was around 50 times last year, some just for a few minutes, other times for an hour or so, that they had to close the road to let the traffic clear. And 4th of July, the three or four days around 4th of July, usually is one of the times when there's multiple closures just because so many people want to get up there and check out the view at the same time. Wow. And, and Labor Day is not quite that bad? Uh, Labor Day and Memorial Day, you get a little bump because people traditionally take some vacation time then, but they're not anywhere near as bad. Okay, that's good to know. Now, you can be part of Friends of Acadia's good work at Acadia National Park. Visit their website at friendsofacadia.org and take a look at all that they're involved with to ensure that your park vacation there is one of a lifetime. And consider supporting them with a membership donation. Earl, thanks again for joining us. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Kurt. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles off the Florida Keys, just very well might be the most difficult park to reach in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, scuba diving, fishing, and kayaking. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War-era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. You hear them before you see them. The roar, the whoosh, the crash. And when you see them, you just stand and marvel. They are the waterfalls of Yosemite National Park, and they leap from some of the most magnificent granite cliffs in the world. Rock monuments called El Capitan, Half Dome, and Glacier Point. But you don't need to stay in a crowded lodge during your Yosemite vacation. Yosemite's Scenic Wonders Vacation Rentals is the choice for people who want a great value for their Yosemite accommodations. Scenic Wonders offers beautiful homes located away from the more congested tourist spots to keep your stay feeling uninterrupted and memorable. Visit them at scenicwonders.com.
Last fall, one of the big wildfires burning in California that got a lot of attention was the Woolsey Fire. It burned uh, across the Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area. And within the NRA, it burned roughly 90% of the Park Service lands there. We're starting to see um, recovery coming uh, in terms of the natural resources. Uh, There's been some sprouting of vegetation, and there's predictions that there'll be an incredible wildflower bloom this spring because of all the rain and the seeds that the the fire left behind. Recently, uh, traveler contributor Rita Beamish went down to Santa Monica Mountains NRA to take a look at the damage that was done and uh, the recovery that's moving forward. Rita's with us. Uh, How are you doing today, Rita? Hi, great. Thank you. So tell us, what was your initial impression uh, once you got on the ground down there in the NRA? Um, it was interesting because I wasn't sure what, whether I would see completely blackened mountains like I'd seen the photos of or whether because they've had a lot of really great rain this winter, um, the landscape would look different. And it was really the latter. There's a lot of little little patchy green fuzz on the mountainsides that the, because they've had some excellent rains, you know, the good kind of rain, not the kind that comes down in sheets and takes away all the topsoil. But because of the fire, there have been mudslides too. So it's kind of a mix of fire damage with some slopes still very much black and the steeper slopes, nothing too much growing there. And this, this spring sprout, which early spring sprout, little seedlings growing, which actually does look great and still recovering from um, mudslides, trails kind of covered in rock fall. The after effect of the fire, which is that rain brings um, a lot of drainage and sod and earth <clears throat> that has no vegetation to hold it in place now after the fire. How's access? I understand there, there's some hiking trails that are open, but I, but I imagine it's kind of tough to get around. Very much so. And the most famous trail up there, I think, is the Backbone Trail. It's about 65 or 67 miles. It runs all along the spine of the Santa Monica Mountains. And I went looking for um, a, a certain trailhead where I heard that the trail had fallen away a lot of the culverts, they, they make them out of this PVC, I think, and they, then they cover it with soil. And because of the fire, some of those culverts had actually just melted. Then the whole thing collapses. And I went looking for that, and I, I literally could not find the trail just dead-ended, and it was completely covered. Uh, and this is the Backbone Trail. It was completely covered with rock for all mudslide, no sign that a trail had ever been there. So I wasn't even able to find the collapsed culvert. But um, yeah, so they want to get the trails open as soon as possible. And they're working on that. But it's still pretty early in the recovery process. Hiking is the main attraction. That's what most of the people go to the, to the mountains for. I guess it's got to be a, an almost overwhelming task that the Park Service staff faces there. Because not only do you have you know trails that have been uh, knocked out or, or buried under the mudslides, but you've got the wildlife issues with the the mountain lions and and uh, other animals that were impacted by the fire, as well as uh, a lot of the historic structures like the famous Paramount Ranch that long has served as a movie set and one of the most popular uh, attractions there at the, the NRA. Yeah, the the Santa Monica Mountains and the National Recreation Area is kind of the definition of a multi-use park. Um, perfect example, the Paramount Ranch is an old Western movie town with a saloon, um, uh, you know, sheriff's office, general store. And it was used for decades by movie and TV sets, including Medicine Woman, I think, Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman and Westworld. Uh, and I said, you know, it has been used, but it, not anymore. I mean, it is flattened. It is completely crunched and melted to the ground. So 
yeah, that's that kind of discussion is underway. What will it take to rebuild that? How will it be rebuilt? It is a movie set, so it doesn't have to be completely, you know, great, strong construction. But on the other hand, there's visitor facilities and restrooms that do have to be to meet, you know, those kind of specs. And so it does, it gives some opportunity to locate things in a place that makes sense where over the years, maybe things have been a little bit hodgepodge, but there's the Peter Strauss Ranch, another venue that burned very popular for weddings and events. And, you know, there's some of these ranch properties that over the years have been given to the park service by just, you know, people who donated their land and their ranch. So you have a few of those very nice venues that are both recreational use and uh, kind of event sites and also double as visitor centers and, you know, national park uh, administrative places. So yeah, it's, there's a lot of assessment to do. Um, Just what is the state of the wildlife and vegetation and resources and then getting cost estimates and what's, what's going to take to rebuild. Well, yeah, you mentioned cost estimates, and I, I guess that's really got to be a, a tough one there. I mean, the, the Park Service has a nearly $12 billion maintenance backlog, and I guess we're kind of talking a little bit of apples and oranges here. But as you say, they have to come up with a, a, a estimate of what it's going to cost to uh, do the restoration, and then they've got to find the money. So, the yeah, the first stage, the way they do it is they have about a year with, for what they consider emergency uh, recovery, like safety utilities, uh, hazards, like say rebarred on the trail or trees down on the roads. And there's already a lot of bulldozers in there doing that stuff. But something like, for instance, the archival collection that burned up, there's, there's not money in the emergency funds once they, you know, rescued what they could from their museum building that burned, that the emergency is considered no longer an emergency there. And that's a tough one. That's, those are kind of the tough, some of the work that the park service does. That's the visitors don't always see curating and archiving historical and cultural materials. And so that's, you know, yeah, it's a very, and then after the the emergency work is done, then you, you're going to go to the next level and they've estimated just for structures, they lost like 30 actual structures and then uh, trail bridges, sort of fences, other kind of uh, structures that are, you know, need to be repaired or rebuilt. And for that sort of structural work, the estimate right now is 29 million. In a park, this budget is something like eight million, eight and a half million. You know, I'm sure that number is going to go up. Uh, I recall at uh, Death Valley National Park uh, a couple of years ago, they had a, a flood that really damaged uh, Scotty's Castle up in uh, Grapevine Canyon. And uh, I think the initial damage estimate was around $20 million. And now I think it's up to $50 million in terms of what, uh, what it'll cost to put it all back together again. Did, um, did they lose a lot of archival materials at uh, Santa Monica Mountains? They lost a lot, almost all. And the only things that survived, and I'll talk about this in my upcoming story, are the stone artifacts from the Chumash Indians and, you know, really uh, in some metal I saw a pair of handcuffs um, from the old West days. Uh, so yeah, no, I, this little this little small little um, archival kind of research and curating building burned around the, these rock artifacts, and anything that was paper or meltable is incinerated. Rocks are blackened, broken. Some of them fell, but um, you know pieces like like 
old timey shells and beads and that kind of stuff just pulverized, you know, little teeny, teeny bits that they were able to pull out of there. Kind of an interesting story. Yeah. As far as the, the wildlife, I think uh, I read someplace, uh, maybe on the Traveler, one mountain lion, they believe, was lost to the fire. Two, actually. Yeah. One was uh, they, that they were tracking. They were tracking 13. And, you know, there may be a few more, but I, I think that it's a very small population hemmed in by freeways in the ocean. So while Santa Monica Mountains is a large recreation area and it's a large habitat, it's not that it can't support a really big population. And uh, that's one of the problems is trying to keep these mountain lions you know, sustainable because of inbreeding issues with a, such a small population. But anyway, one was they were tracking and then, they, you know, he was in a serious fire area that they knew was really burning. And he, you know, that he was burned there. And the other one they found with his paws really burned and singed and, and both of those mountain lions perished. So that was really a, really a sad loss. They have a bobcat population as far as they know. Uh, those bobcats are okay, but um, a lot of other animals, wildlife, you know, rabbits were died a lot and, you know, rodents and lizards and all that kind of um, other, you know, wildlife were really, really, you know, big loss. It's just not, nobody knows yet. And I'm not sure if they will know you know, exactly the extent of it. Yeah, I'm sure it's a whole nother aspect of uh, the recovery operation. One is the uh, facilities and the hiking trails and whatnot, and the other is the, uh, the assessment of exactly what happened to the wildlife there. Well, Rita, I appreciate the, uh, the short uh, tease of uh, the story, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing on the travel in the coming days. Thank you. The national parks are here for all of us. A truly American idea dependent on the support of people like you. The National Park Foundation works in the parks you love to protect them for the next generation. Through the foundation's programs, trails in the national park system are maintained, ocean resources and their marine life are protected, and philanthropic dollars are raised to help support park managers make ends meet. See how you can support the National Parks by visiting nationalparks.org. There never is an off-season for the National Parks. You can always find something to do, somewhere to go in the National Park System, no matter what month it is. For instance, it's mid-February, and I'm working on our backcountry permit application for Yellowstone National Park. The backcountry staff there likes to get the applications in during the month of March, and they throw them into the lottery system, which kicks out the results around April 1st. That's when we find out who got the backcountry dates that they wanted and the backcountry campsites that they wanted. High season is starting to wind down in places like Death Valley National Park and Organ Pipe Cactus National Monument. The cooler winter months are slowly giving way to the warmer spring and much, much hotter summer. Not too many people can enjoy 110 plus degree weather during the days in those places and so winter is the time to visit them. March into April is a good time to head down to Saguaro National Park in Arizona to enjoy the blooms of octillo, prickly pear, and brittle brush in the cactus forest. May is a great time to head to Arches and Canyonlands National Parks in Utah for their blooms of Indian paintbrush, globe mallow, and the various cacti species. 
Thru-hikers are looking at the calendar and making final preparations for their walk from Springer Mountain in Georgia to Mount Katahdin in Maine along the Appalachian Trail. If river running is your passion, keep an eye on the snowpack in the upper Colorado Basin, which feeds the Colorado, Yampa, and the San Juan Rivers. As of last week, the snowpack was nearly 116% of normal. If that continues, it could be a bodacious year to run Cataract Canyon through Canyonlands National Park with the river running outfitter Oars. For those who want to know, we're halfway through the Trump administration and there's still no Senate-confirmed director of the National Park Service. There also are vacancies for the directors of the Midwest, Intermountain, and National Capital regions of the National Park Service. Thanks for joining us this week. Next week, we'll sit down with David and Kay Scott, authors of The Complete Guide to the National Park Lodges, to discuss some park lodges where you can no longer book a room. This is Kurt Repencheck for National Parks Traveler. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.